Hello there, and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love. I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane. And today we are joined by Leah Labresco Sargent. Leah, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Leah, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a convert to Catholicism. I grew up as an atheist. I came into the church back in 2012. And now I work for a group that does depolarization to help bring people together against political divides. And I run a substack called Other Feminisms that's really focused on how is our dignity grounded in our dependence? It's a way to push back against a world that really argues we're only valuable when we're autonomous, we don't depend on anyone else, which can distort both how we advocate for women and how we see ourselves in our relationship to God. Great. And Leah's probably too humble to mention this, but she's also authored at least two books that I'm aware of, Arriving at Amen and Building the Benedict Option. You've got it. No secret one out on okay. shelves at the moment. Okay. So we'll, we'll have a link to uh, other feminisms and uh, those two books in the show notes as well. So, Leah, last year on Other Feminisms, you posted an article called Children Ask You to Die for Self, but you also just posted another one recently called Babies Against Despair, and they both revolve around how people think about having children. Every so often, a cultural commentator will look at, say, the declining fertility rate, and they'll recommend some reason or benefit for having children outside of the love of the spouse's proper. Are there any of those reasons that jump out to you as particularly misleading? Part of the problem with these kind of empirical cases for having children is sort of the same problem as the empirical case for being religious. When people say, well, you know, religious people live a little bit longer or you know, they report greater happiness or they have a better social support network. And those things may all be true and they can be good fruits of our life in Christ. But we would never love God or return his love for the sake of those benefits and kind of framing it that way both isn't actually a way to convert. You can't actually become religious just by wanting a higher sense of happiness or purpose. You have to actually come to know God. And similarly with children, there are ways that children really enrich people's lives emotionally, a huge support when you're older and have someone you depend on. And yet you can't parent simply for the sake of those benefits. So I think children really justify themselves simply because they are. And it is good to know and love other people. They're the natural fruits of marriage. But you can't get there by citing even real benefits because a child doesn't justify themselves. Right. And sometimes people, I think, will try to justify it. I think there are a couple of versions of this that you mentioned where the success sequence, or like you just said, children as like an elder care insurance policy. What do people mean by the success sequence? This is the idea that you have to make sure everything's in place to have a child, that everything's all set up correctly. So that's often you want to be married, you want to have economic security, do those things in the right order, and you're more likely to not fall into poverty. And that's true. And it is a real benefit to have all those things in place. But part of the problem with success sequence rhetoric, which tends to be directed at lower income people, and also the kind of capstone view of marriage, which is directed at higher income people. Those are folks who are already economically secure. And instead of being told to wait to be able to stably rent a home, there's being thought, I should wait till I buy a home. I should wait till I've gotten tenure. I should wait till I've been made partner. I should wait till everything else is set. And then I'll add children to a life that already works. This is sort of the having it all view. It's not so much having it all as just, you know, a child is the last thing to be added. Mm. You have to have everything else in place for whatever you imagine 
stability will look like before you can add a child to the mix. And that's a bad idea for a couple of reasons, even though stability itself can be good. For one thing, it really pushes people more towards abortion. If you tell people that the responsible thing to do is to not have a child and do whatever you need to not have a child until you're completely ready. And that's that's a dangerous kind of thing to push on people, again, especially for folks who are reasonably stable or might make things work, but have this heightened idea of everything they need and go, well, you know, until I'm sure I can have things on track to save for college, I can't have a child, right? So you do people a real disservice just by setting the bar too high, or even when the bar is reasonable, telling people it's not allowed to have a child, it's irresponsible to have a child. So when in fact you already have a child, it feels like the responsible choice is to kill the child, to remove them until everything else is set. But I think the other problem with this is just, it promotes an idea that you'll be done changing as a person. You'll have reached whoever you're supposed to be and then have a child. (laughs) And that's very much not how having children works. So you set people up for a different kind of disappointment, whiplash, confusion, kind of in the same way for marriage. If the idea is you finish working on yourself, you're all done becoming a person you've become wealthy enough or virtuous enough or whatever it is, old enough, and then you get married, perfect as you are, needing to change. And of course, In fact, you will still need to change. And it may be harder if you feel like you've found your set shape for the rest of your life. You mean you're not encased in bronze right now? (laughs) No, no. You know, I can sometimes not be quite as malleable as I need to be, but at least I know that I'm not done. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And, And you have some pretty immediate visceral experience of this just having had a baby yourself, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So thank you again for making time for this. We really appreciate it. For the earlier article, Children Ask You to Die to Self, which we'll also have a, a link to in the episode notes, there was a current of a couple of these articles at the time, and this was about a year, year and a half ago, where children were recommended as a way to self-emptying and a way to holiness for people who might not otherwise be inclined to pursue holiness, right? Sort of. You know, I think one of the really notable pieces was by Ross Douthat in Plow, and it was The Case for One More Child, and it addressed a couple claims about children. But what it culminated in was that he said that there are a lot of ways to be a saint. You don't have to have children. You don't need to be married to be a saint. But he says that for him particularly, and this is a quote from the piece, if I didn't have kids, there's a 5% chance I'd be doing something more radical in pursuit of sainthood. There's a 95% chance I'd just be a more persistent sinner, a more selfish person because no squalling infant or tearful nine-year-old is there to force me to live for her and not myself. (laughs) As someone who's got a newborn in the house, it's really true that whatever the state of your spiritual life, just having someone present who depends on you forces you to move beyond yourself and your own needs. I have to get up in the middle of the night to nurse my baby and change her diaper. And there are other sacrifices I could take on voluntarily, but it is a real gift to me to have some that have come to meet me in my house that have very cute cheeks, which makes it easier to do, (laughs) but to have a way that I have a habit of saying no to some of my own desires or plans and being willing to be at the disposal of my vocation to serve the baby instead. And I think everyone has that open to them, not only through children. Having even a roommate can be an invitation to that because it disrupts our own sense of control over our lives. You know, taking in someone who's sick, being sick yourself disrupts this. But I think Ross is right that children are the most common invitation to come out of yourself and respond to someone's needs. 
And that makes it hard for folks who are waiting a long time for marriage, who are living alone, who want to be of service to others and try and figure out, well, where can I do this? How can I make this part of my life every day and not a volunteer opportunity once a month? That reminds me of another quote that you had in that piece from uh, Sarah Rule. There were times when it felt as though my children were annihilating me. Truly, you have not lived until you have changed one baby's diaper while another baby quietly vomits on your shin. And finally, I came to the thought, all right, then annihilate me. That other self was a fiction anyhow. And then I could breathe. And Sarah Rule is a really incredible playwright, and she's writing as the mother of young twins there. And I think she's right, you know, that we hold on to certain ideas of ourselves that get in the way of becoming who God is calling us to be, who other people need us to be. And there's a real sense in which the visceral need of others interrupts that self, that fiction, and allows us to be more generous than we would choose to be if it were just a matter of choosing. You know, instead of having to decide, I'm going to leave my house and run towards need. Need has come to Sarah Rule. Need is vomiting on her shins. And that really gives her an opportunity she wouldn't otherwise have to go out to others in love because it's right there demanding something of her. And that makes it easier to give a yes sometimes. It's interesting that that easier part at the end where she says like, and then I could breathe. I wonder if that's related to the more recent article about Babies Against Despair, where there's this false image of oneself that causes this tension that makes you resist being annihilated because you have this sort of image of yourself as this independent entity that shouldn't be imposed upon, I guess. I struggle with this a lot, viewing things or viewing people or viewing myself as an imposition. And it seems like that embrace of somebody else's dependence makes it easier to have that truer view of yourself as dependent too. Yeah, you know, I think it's that that sense of our own independence that makes it very hard sometimes to respond to other people's dependence because we see them as so different from ourselves, this false image of ourself, because we're scared of admitting that we're dependent. And then that makes us kind of react in revulsion to someone else's naked dependence. We think, what if I were exposed that way? And just a real doubt that we're lovable if we're dependent. And the more we respond to other people's dependence with kind of fear or reluctance, you know, the more we see other people do that, the more we kind of look at the world around us and conclude, I would be rejected if I were dependent. And that unfortunately can be true, right? We live in a world that's harsh, that doesn't respond to need in justice. But the, the book I was drawing from in that other post, which was The Meaning of Birth, you know, is saying the thing we know is that at bedrock, someone does respond to our dependence with love, and that's God. You know, the whole world can fail us in this, but the bedrock of our existence is that God, moment to moment, conserves us in existence. You know, we have to be loved by God to be. And so even when the world rejects us and rejects our dependence, he has said yes to us. He says yes to us moment by moment from the moment of our conception, you know, forever. And so our dependence is always met with welcome by God, even if we don't all live up to what he's calling us to do in imitation of him. The despair there that that post is addressing is like you're saying, you know, the world doesn't respond to our dependence in that way. And so we feel this need to justify our own existence and to be of use. I think that's a good longing, right? We do want to be of use, but we know we're not all the time. We know there are periods in our life where we aren't. And of course, in an ultimate sense, we're not of use to God. 
he lacks nothing. You know, there's nothing we can go do. There's no kind of, I'm going to go meditate on the mysteries of the rosary so hard. I'll tell God something about his life that he didn't know. Right. And so when people have that kind of tip towards despair, the kind of impulse there, I want to be of service, you know, is a good impulse. The, the sense of reality, I don't actually have enough to add to justify my own existence is true. And then the answer is, God loves us out of his all-sufficient love. And we don't have to say, well, once I'm old, can I still justify existing You know, if I'm mostly dependent on others? And the answer is you have never justified yourself existing. Being old is not as different from the rest of your life as you might imagine. Yeah, it's just a few fewer widgets. Mm-hmm. That anxiety about being of use is actually related to a movie we just talked about in our previous episode, Encanto, which you also just wrote about for First Things, right? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I had some quibbles with the structure of the musical that are probably a little more musical theater nerdy than we're going to get into here. But (laughs) I think it was tackling an interesting question in the show. And that revolved around for you and your viewing of the movie was how they create this community of refuge right? And how do they maintain it? And how do they maintain their own mindset, their own worldview in the midst of that refuge, right? Yeah, because I think the show kind of presents us with a very compelling family and a mater familias who has fled persecution and violence and has learned how to live carefully in the under the shadow of a threat. But then when she has more space and has genuinely won something for her family, has won greater safety than she herself experienced, the question is, how do you not continue to live fearfully? How do you not continue to live as though everything is scarce and has to be hoarded and held onto? How do you live generously when what you've known is scarcity, fear, and persecution? I read your piece after Kara and I recorded our segment. I I remember thinking, dang it, I wish we had thought about it from that perspective. So definitely worth checking out. We'll also have a link to that in in the episode notes. Leah, I have one last question for you as a musical theater nerd. All right. (laughs) We talked about West Side Story a little while ago. Do you have thoughts on the new movie? It was hard for me to watch. And this isn't a criticism of the movie. I just, I loved the old movie. And then I had trouble turning off the part of myself that was comparing, contrasting Mm -hmm. at various points. And if I were going to quibble in a substantive way, I think sometimes quoting the movie so directly you know, by having Maria in the same dress, you know, echoing Bernardo's shirt made it harder for me to watch it as a new work. But the moments where I had the easiest time doing it, I was, you know, very impressed by elements of it. I'd say the song shared by Riff and Tony Poole, where they're dancing over a kind of rotted dock, was original, true to the spirit of the show, kind of restaged who the song was between and what the stakes were. Mm-hmm. And it just had this they, what they really did beautifully there is West Side Story is a show you know, that's about the Romeo and Juliet story, but more than the original Romeo and Juliet puts the friendships and violence of these boys front and center and kind of giving Tony and Riff this balletic fighting duet. You could see their friendship even as they were struggling because you know, with the heightened language of dance, the way they paired each other so well kind of gave me a sense of the depth of their friendship because they could only duet and match each other's movements by having spent their whole lives growing up together, scuffling in the streets. So I thought that was my the most beautiful new thing done in the show. 
Got it. You see, that's that's totally different. I've only seen the original movie once and the stage version zero times. So it was different for me. So that's that's an interesting take. I imagine for people who are more familiar with musical theater, the stage show and the original movie must loom so large. And I don't want to be too hard on it because there are actually substantial shifts between the stage show to the original movie and then some additional ones here where folks have still kind of tugged songs into different places in the show, which is unusual or adapting it. And I think many of them all hold up. Interesting. Well, Leah, is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? I think one of the challenges in offering a Catholic witness to the world is simply telling people it's all right to be needy, that their dignity is not dependent only on a secular materialist view of the world. And we can tell people that partly by explaining it explicitly, as I try and do in other feminisms. But there, I'm just working through language. So I think another big way of doing it is through both going out to your friends, to other people you know, to meet them in your need. But just as much when you yourself have need to ask other friends to care for you, because they may not have the courage to tell you, I've got stomach flu, I could order in, but I wish someone would come take care of me. Would you do it? Unless you do that first. It's unusual to ask for help, big help from a friend. We think of that as confined only to families. And that's very hard on folks who don't have someone else living with them. So make your own need visible so that your friends aren't as afraid of making their need visible to you. Yeah, that's, I'm not the most social person, but the times when I've had success getting to know a stranger, it's usually when I've been okay revealing a little bit of vulnerability first, and then they follow in turn or vice versa. They they take the first step and then I am more at ease doing the same. So that, that seems like a deeper version of that. So yeah, thank you. I think that'll Absolutely. be helpful for a lot of people to hear. All right. Well, uh, Leela Bresco, Sergeant, thank you again for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we are back with Kara. Kara, thanks for joining us. Always good to be on. And today we are talking about Weathering With You, a 2019 Japanese film directed by Makoto Shinkai, which was released to critical acclaim about some stuff. Um, (laughs) Really, that's the problem with this movie. It's like, what is this movie about exactly? (laughs) uh, It's a boy meets girl story, except the girl has to save Tokyo from the weather. And if she does, the boy loses the girl. Is that a fair elevator pitch? Sure. We only know that because we saw it through to the end. Yeah. It's not clear that like that's the plot of the movie until like 99% of the way through. No. In this movie, it is raining in Tokyo and it's not stopping. And eventually it's going to get worse and worse until Tokyo is underwater. Unless this girl, whose character's name is Hina, who has some power over the weather, sacrifices herself to the sky thereby saving the city. At the same time, it's also about this runaway kid and his journey through Tokyo, (laughs) I guess? Right. Clandestine underbelly of Tokyo. (laughs) The boy, his name is Hodoka, and the story is from his point of view. So he runs away from his island for reasons that are not really ever explained, and he goes to Tokyo, and he meets this girl and develops a relationship with her. And they're more or less high school age. He's 16 and she's supposed to be 18. She's supposed to be 18, but it's revealed later that it sh- she was lying about her age and she's really 15. Kids these days. <laughs> I feel like we should give some context. Like, why did we watch this movie at all? <laughs> <laughs> it was a very successful follow-up to an even more successful movie called Your Name. 
which was made by the same director, came out a few years before, and was like the most successful movie in Japanese history. This one is a little bit more overtly about love, I guess, but it surprised me by one, just kind of how, how crazy Hodaka, the main kid, is, and how sort of maniacally he pursues whatever he's feeling at any given moment. Usually that means like escaping from the police and from child protective services. Which I will say, why is it that the Tokyo police think that like every teenager they encounter is a runaway? Unless for some reason Hodaka looks particularly shady. Maybe he doesn't have on a school uniform. Maybe that's what it is. Oh, but, uh, yeah. that He does eventually like get returned to his island and go back to school and you see him in the school uniform. So I think there's something to that. I think there are two main angles we want to talk about this movie from. The first one has to do with Hina's status as a sunshine girl and her sacrificial significance. And then the second one has to do with Hodaka's experience with losing somebody he loves, especially in relationship to his mentor character, Keisuke, who similarly lost his wife. So the first one, this movie talks about sunshine girls as if that's an existing thing in Japanese folklore, whereby a person is given the ability to control the weather, but eventually has to sacrifice themselves to prevent the weather from getting too bad. I tried looking up some background on this. I'm not really sure if that's a thing in real life in Japanese culture, but I couldn't really find anything. So I think it might just be an invention of this movie. Carrie, did you find anything? No, I I also think it sort of like takes it as its own world. Yeah. It doesn't seem to have like a big connection. Yeah. It seems sort of like just a excuse for the idea of a chosen person whose purpose is to be sacrificed, which, you know, as a Christian, I can't help but see some parallels. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like, even though this this movie is sort of influenced by animism in Japanese culture, which is to be expected, it does seem to have that element which is common to a lot of human cultures, if not all of them, for some need for an individual to be sacrificed for the good of mankind. Or the good of the community. Usually it's more limited than all of mankind. Um, and in this case, it's limited to Tokyo. So yeah, I think there's some of that there. And it's expressed in kind of a limited way. And I think partially for good story reasons. Like she doesn't just save Tokyo. In the first half of the movie, she has a job doing kind of smaller weather improvement tasks for people who want it to be sunny on their birthday. or Which is, you know, in running this kind of weather small business these two kids like get to know each other and they develop a relationship and he definitely develops a crush on her which i guess she also does feel yeah it's i mean it feels as though it's assumed she agrees yeah well first she takes his gift uh, a birthday gift of a ring and then you know sort of in response to that she seems to essentially offer to sacrifice herself for eternal sunshine <laughs> There are a couple aspects to this, because here's what happens first. The weather keeps getting worse. The rain keeps getting worse. They both understand what needs to happen in this system. He doesn't want it to happen, but she asks him at one point, does he want to see the sunshine? Is that how she phrases it? I think she says, do you want it to oh, to be sunny all the time? And he seems to sort of unthinkingly respond, yes. Obviously, we want the rain to end. Yeah, I guess maybe we should back up for a second. Yeah. It's unclear at the outset of the movie, like, what exactly is happening. It's just been raining nonstop in Tokyo 
in the summer for like two months. So it's been cold and rainy inexplicably, but it's just a feature of what's happening. And then we come to discover that Hina has the ability to essentially like make the clouds part for a moment, which you're like, oh, that's a cool thing to be able to do. It then slowly becomes revealed that she, every time she does perform a a sort of sunshine act, let's say. Yeah, she prays hard and yeah it gets sunny out and then she she's starting to become more transparent so like every time she does this she becomes less substantial in this world materially yeah Yeah. like she's becoming see-through yeah and so the hodaka character happens to be employed by a sort of tabloid sort of science fiction newspaper unclear let's call it a tabloid yeah so they like hunt down these kinds of stories and so they happen to talk to a guy who tells them the myth that or a seeming myth that throughout history there are always you know these events that happen where the weather gets crazy and then there's these sunshine girls who have to be sacrificed in order to restore balance to nature yeah and so it every it clicks in everyone's brain they're like oh my gosh hina is one of these sunshine girls if we you know this rain isn't just rain this is some kind of you know cyclical punishment on tokyo that can only be resolved with a sacrifice, specifically a sunshine girl sacrifice. So that's that's kind of the setup. You're both understanding like who these people are and now we've got the stakes set. Right. I mean, honestly, I think Hodaka is a little bit dumb. <laughs> Granted, he's like a 16 year old boy. He like sure. ran away from home because unclear, he like wants to live in Tokyo. Yeah. Further evidence that like maybe he's a little dumb. It's funny because then, you, you know, he falls in love with Hina and she asks a seemingly innocuous question. But like, if you've been following along, obviously, this is a very meaningful question. And Hodaka doesn't really <laughs> pick up on what the significance of it is until he says, yes, like, of course, I'd want it to be sunny. It all of a sudden clicks when he's like, wait, no, 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 no. She's going to go away forever. That. Yeah. Like, I'm I'm trying to choose like the, the actual choice between... Am I choosing the common good or am I choosing to lose this person? Right. And so at the end, he enters the, I don't know, sky realm and basically pulls her back from the brink, undoing her sacrifice and continuing the weather so that Tokyo is eventually submerged. Yeah. (laughs) That actually happens. You know, at first I thought this choice is very selfish. (laughs) Tokyo has to be underwater so I can have a girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) But at the same time, though, this sacrificial system does strike me as being a little unjust. So maybe he's right to oppose it because whatever force is behind the rain is not God. It's some other entity that doesn't seem to have humanity's best interests at heart. Yeah. Or at least it doesn't really like care. It may just, you know, it's a yeah. it's a force. It's at you know? best indifferent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Also unseen at any point. So it's not the villain of the movie. The movie doesn't really have a villain, but at the same time it's the obstacle that has to be overcome. We watched this with my husband Jason, and Jason and I sort of found ourselves several times after the movie just kind of Huh, I don't I don't quite know what to make of this sacrifice narrative. You know, it's obviously not in a Christian context. Right. So I don't want to be too hard on it as if it's meaning to be some bad theology. I don't think it is at all. Right. But I feel like it does highlight though just 
the difficulty of I don't know sacrifice without sort of Christ narrative and without the idea of meaning purpose because on the one hand like they both seem like good choices right like why would you say that one could be better than the other love is a very noble and beautiful thing and so like of course he would want to save her because he loves her so why should he put all of humanity above her as an individual to say that like yep you should give yourself up for all of humanity but there's something that still strikes me as being kind of off about like negating the sacrifice that she made yeah it was sort of her choice still and when her choice is negated she doesn't really seem to object to basically being overruled yeah that's true she just like comes back yeah she's like oh you really cared for me okay (laughs) she still seems to have some powers too it's a little unclear at the end (laughs) i think she does whatever force was behind it just wanted tokyo submerged or her to be sacrificed So it got one of those things and is happy to let her continue on. Mm -hmm. Very strange. Also, we should mention probably that this movie is, it's animated, but it's not necessarily a kid's movie. It's PG-13. So disclaimer there. So on the spectrum of from Studio Ghibli to problematic, this is probably, if Studio Ghibli is a one and problematic is a 10, I would say this is probably like a four. Maybe a little more. Maybe a six. Yeah. What it has to say, even though it's not making a theological point, it's definitely tricky. Let's say that it's tricky when it comes to what it's saying about cosmic sacrifice. (laughs) Maybe we should turn to the cost of the sacrifice and specifically how the so that second angle of how Hodaka and his mentor react to losing the women that they love, because obviously this is a one of the worst things you can go through in real life. And when you're a hormonal teenager, it's probably... Uh, significantly more complicated to go through. Though it is a bit of a trope in movies for a female character to exist just to die and serve as emotional motivation for a male character. So noting that, you know, you you see this first in the mentor, Keisuke, who's Hodaka's boss at the tabloid, whose wife is dead when we meet him. And he's sort of disillusioned with life. Seems like he's a degenerate at first. Chain smoking, drinking his breakfast and lunch and probably dinner they have to get him out of the pachinko uh club (laughs) oh that's right yeah he's gambling a lot not running a thriving business and yeah so he's pretty much broken by the loss of his wife you know this experience causes Keisuke to be kind of concerned about where Hodaka's going in all of this with potentially losing Hina his I don't know erstwhile girlfriend they come out and say it in the middle of the movie that Hodaka reminds Keisuke of himself and he doesn't want him to go down the same road He probably does in terms of how he reacts to losing Hina, where the police are looking for him because he's a fugitive kid who has no parent or guardian in Tokyo, and he is frequently evading police. Obstruction of justice all over the place. And like at one point he escapes from police custody. Finds himself like in a fight with a pimp, maybe? Right. He rescues Hina from a pimp at one point. That's fortunately not too graphic. But he he like pulls a gun on an officer and on an unarmed civilian. This is a very unhinged teenager, is what we're trying to say. (laughs) Yeah. And most of the the unhingedness centers around or is driven by his desire not to lose Hina. You know, he's got to go save her from the sky. I think what it illustrates is that wanting to be with somebody 
and wanting not to lose them are not the same thing. Because wanting not to lose Hina almost becomes like its own directive, which totally subsumes whether or not he enjoys being with her. Which I think is what he he wants. You know, he wants to be with her, but he pursues not losing her to such a disproportionate degree that it threatens both of them. He's not thinking clearly about what means will best accomplish his ends because his will is so disproportionate. And I don't know if he ever really learns the lesson. Tease out the difference for me. On a gut level, I think I I see what you're saying. Like, what's the difference to you of wanting to be with her versus like not wanting to lose her? There's a really nice scene in the middle of the movie where with the two of them and her little brother staying in like a hotel, having kind of a home alone (laughs) night where they're like singing karaoke and it's all very fun. And he enjoys being with her in that time. And I think that's when he's like happiest in the movie. After that, when she's going away to sacrifice herself and the police are coming to arrest him, it seems like that positive experience is not what's driving him. It's just an obstacle has presented itself and I need to do anything whatsoever to evade this obstacle. Yeah, I guess there's not very much focus on what is best for her or who she is. It's more about his feelings about her. Because he does things in attempting to evade those obstacles that endanger both him and her, like pulling the gun on people, such that he's making life difficult for both of them, rather than like calmly explaining the situation to people who might be in a position to help. Yeah, he definitely like embodies a certain kind of frantic teenager energy. Yeah. It's interesting you brought up the boss, Kasuke, who, I mean, essentially seems like he empathizes with Hodoka because he's like, I was that kid too. I was also a runaway and things like that. But being the older, wiser, but wiser in quotes, character, he sees where... It's like you're just being kind of emotional. Right. And I mean, even I'll say wiser in the sense that like the Kasuke character has his own growth trajectory because he realizes that like his own degenerate life is keeping him from spending all of his time with his daughter. His daughter is currently living with the grandmother, like seems like his wife's his wife's mom. It's kind of him realizing that, like, at some point you have to grow up and actually, like, do the hard things in order to have what you really want, which he's like, what I really want is to spend my time with my daughter and, like, live with her. And I can do that if I, like, stop smoking. (laughs) You know, we can, like, live in the same place because she has asthma. I think by the end of the movie, he does make that improvement, right? Like, he does stop smoking. Well, like, it seems to be personified by the fact that he has some other more clean-cut job. Yeah. I don't know, is it it an accounting firm? Unclear. But Oh, that's right. His business is definitely in a real office with some level of organization and professionalism. Yeah. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Whereas, uh, like, Hodaka, by the end of the movie, I mean, he's three years older, but I don't think he's revealed, demonstrated to be any different personality-wise. No, I agree. It's a kind of weird ending because it's like the main character actually like, has he grown? I don't really (laughs) think he has. In a way of like, yo, the Kasuke character is a more heartwarming story because he's actually becoming the adult he needs to be in a positive way, not in like a depressing, like, oh, being an adult sucks, you know? Right. Yeah. He grows up in like the healthy way that leads to greater happiness. So I guess the takeaway here, if you're a teen listening to this, You're not going to be the same person three years from now. 
When your choices drowned the city of Tokyo, by the way. These teens and their constant urban submersions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hey, Hina is perhaps unsurprisingly, a much more responsible teenager. She's like taking care of her younger brother when they're both orphans. They're basically running a self-sufficient home without anyone taking any notice for much of the movie. Yeah, I think it's sweet. Like the little brother too at the end seems to have, I don't want to say it's like more pure motives, but I mean, the little brother is a hilarious character and... You know, he basically does his part to try and save his sister. But it, it feels like it's coming from a more of pure place than Hodaka in a way. Yeah. Bring my sister back because it's my sister and she needs to live. Not that sibling love is more important than romantic love. Obviously, I feel a little shady about Hodaka's ability to have true love as maybe JP2 would envision it. This feels like it's very sentimental. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, very sentimental. And to the movie's credit, mostly sentimental and not really sensual, except for like a couple of points, but it's not not like a major emphasis of the movie or anything like that, which is good. The thing is, Hodoka seems like a good, if perhaps overly romantic kid. We were expecting this to be a more straightforward love story. I was really thinking it was going to be more of a cute romance not what i got (laughs) yeah it has a little bit of that but it's set against this sort of frantic urgent they're just weird they're like runaway kids he's constantly being hunted down by the police they're like finding themselves in weird situations in the marketing that i saw for this movie the whole police child fugitive angle was not present so the fact that they didn't think it would be appealing in the marketing should have told them something about whether or not it would have been good for the story. Yeah, definitely. I feel like we do an annual Japanese animated movie to cover. I was really expecting something a little bit more uh, Studio Ghibli out of this one. Yeah, this is a far cry from My Neighbor Totoro. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we could probably leave it there. Th- thanks for being on this weird journey with us, y'all. <laughs> Next time, we'll definitely be bringing it back down to Earth. Pun intended, apparently, because Hodaka does bring in it literally down to earth at the end of the movie. Indeed. Well played. Well played. Okay. With that, we will see you next time. Thanks for having me. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now, and God love you. <laughs> <laughs>